Do you remember your days in junior high? Yeah, I'd rather forget them too. For many, it's a three-year private hell whereby kids are stuck in this beyond awkward and insecure phase of life amplified by a hormonal surge of adolescence. Ever aiming to seek out independence from parental care, junior hires ironically turn to their peers who are every bit as insecure and uncertain as they are. The results? Well, let's just say that junior hires can become awfully mean towards one another. In one such instance, V found herself so excited to attend an end-of-the-year choir party at a nice home in an upscale part of town. Along with 50 other schoolmates, she devoured a cornucopia of sugar-laden cookies and candies made available at the table. Eating to her fill, V heard laughter and decided to head in its direction. Olivia Newton-John's hit, Hopelessly Devoted to You, was one of V's favorite songs growing up. So when she heard the music playing in the other room, she grew more and more excited to share her love of that song with her fellow singers. That's so cool, she uttered to herself. I thought I was the only one who loved this song. But now there's no since you push my love aside, I'm out of my head, hopelessly devoted to you, hopelessly devoted to you. Great song, right? So why the laughter, you ask? Well... What they were laughing at was the fact that V was singing over the song into her tape recorder. Somebody got a hold of the treasured mixtape and thought it would be a great party tune. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 54th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical detail, historical context that puts you right in the action. Upon entering the packed room, heads turned to see who it was. From the raging laughter that ensued, V quickly discovered that this was not the type of bonding she was expecting. She ran right out of the room, out of the house, bursting into tears. Like I said, junior hires can be pretty mean sometimes. Being on the outside is rarely a pleasant feeling, as it conjures up feelings of rejection, feelings of not belonging, which is such an intrinsic and fundamental human need. Similar to V's experience at the choir party, we see Titus feeling quite out of place when the church in Jerusalem gathers together. But this is only the tip of the iceberg when a much deeper issue surfaces and requires a clear decision that would determine the future of the church. How does the church pull through this? Well, let's see what happens. And so with that, let's get started. Seated along the top row of the southern steps of the Temple Mount, Nathan looks up from his small band of disciples to see three other rabbis approaching. Shielding his eyes from the overhead sun, Nathan peers into the eyes of a familiar face. Joseph, Nathan exclaims, you're back. Looking to either side of Joseph, Nathan smiles at the others and stands to greet them. Shimshon, hello. He takes a step back to take all three of them in. 
It's so good to see you three. I wasn't sure when you were returning, he says. Nathan, Joseph says, have they met yet? Nathan excuses himself from his disciples and says back to Joseph, Why don't you three take a walk with me? He then turns to those still seated and says, Men, that's it for today. Let's regroup next week, okay? His disciples look at him and then at each other. Shrugging, they stand and leave their separate ways. Strolling towards the southern entrance of the temple, the four speak in low voices so as not to draw attention to their huddle. Well, Joseph asks, have you seen them? Peering around to see if anyone has ears to hear them, Nathan looks at Joseph and confirms, Yes, here's what I know. They're in town and in talks with Peter, John, and James. Good, you're keeping an eye on them, Hello responds. What's your take? Nathan grimaces at this question. It's hard to say. I know John is sympathetic to the Gentiles, as is Peter to some extent. Joseph counters. And James? James might be another story, Nathan says. He's a pragmatist. He realizes that all of the believers here in Jerusalem still practice the law. Shimshon nods and agrees. Surely we have the backing of the entire Jerusalem church. There's no way Paul and Barnabas are that convincing. Shooting a glance over at Shimshon, Hillel says, Really? Nathan nods, then asks, How was your time in Antioch? Were you able to make some headway? Joseph deadpans over at Nathan. Nathan grunts, Oof, that bad, huh? Shaking his head, Joseph responds, The group there is mostly made up of Gentiles who know very little about us Jews. We didn't even know where to start with them. Much worse, Hillel retorts. With Paul and Barnabas countering us, we didn't have much of a prayer to make any headway. Nathan nods and says, And you think we'll fare any better here? Let's hope so, Joseph replied. Let's hope so. He pauses and then looks into the eyes of those huddled with him. For Jesus and the law, he commits. For Jesus and the law, they echo in unison. Stepping through the doorway, Peter looks down to see a younger boy holding a towel and a basin of water. Let me wash your feet, sir, the young boy asks without looking up. Mussing his hair, Peter says, Jacob, look up. The younger boy looks up to see a grizzled Peter staring back at him. He then leaps into Peter's arms and holds on to him. Yes, Peter replies, I'm happy to see you too. Then taking a step towards the courtyard, he thinks better of it. Yes, you'd better wash my feet. Your grandmother wouldn't let me hear the end of it otherwise. The door opens again, and the late afternoon sun peers in to expose the entryway. Jacob shields his eyes and asks, Let me wash your feet, sir. Peter looks to see who has arrived and smiles to see a beaming Barnabas. Barnabas looks down at the younger Jacob and removes his sandals to receive a foot bath. And who are you? I'm Jacob, the boy says, while he gives close attention to ridding Barnabas' feet of the day's dirt. Only seeing the top of his head, Barnabas shrugs and says, Well, it's nice to meet you, Jacob. He then glances at Peter to see him smiling at the exchange. Where are the others, Peter asks. They're behind me, Barnabas offers, but you know Paul. He'll start talking with just about anyone. Just Paul, huh? Peter replies. Yeah, well, Barnabas says. He then looks around and asks, Where's Mary? The door opens to reveal a darkening sky above. The setting sun intermingles with the teeming cloud formations and decorates the deep blue western sky with hues of pink, oranges, and yellows. Without acknowledging the towel boy, one by one, the men remove their sandals and continue their conversation. 
Sticking his right foot into the water basin, Joseph looks back at Hillel and says, Well, by the sound of it, we have a big crowd tonight. Hillel nods as he then receives his own foot bath. Joseph then lets out a breath and says, All right, you guys ready? We have an interesting evening in front of us. Seated around a number of low-rising triclinium tables, the assembly of believers eagerly awaits to begin the meal portion of the evening. In the middle of the courtyard, James stands up and clears his throat to gain everyone's attention. He raises his arms and says, Give thanks to the Lord, the congregation replies. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. So be it, James then asks. So be it, the congregation responds. James smiles at this and continues. Tonight, we have a special night in front of us. He looks over at Barnabas, who's seated between John and Paul at the head of the preeminent table. Our beloved Joseph, Barnabas, has returned with Saul. Slightly shaking his head, Paul sees Titus seated up against the dimly lit wall in the corner of the room. Hearing his name mentioned before the congregation, Paul looks up to see James beaming at he and Barnabas. He smiles and waves and returns his gaze over to the corner where Titus sits. Under his breath, he mutters, The forgotten corner, this isn't good. James continues, As we enjoy our meal together, let us give thanks to God for making tonight possible. As his blessing ends, a series of smaller water jugs are passed around the room. One by one, each person in the courtyard partakes of the hand-washing ceremony and follows with the quiet and not-so-quiet whisper of the Nedalet Yadayim, the lifting up of blameless hands. Paul nudges Barnabas in the side and whispers, We're not in Antioch anymore. Barnabas raises his eyebrows and says, Just smile and wave, Paul. Just smile and wave. Shortly after, Barnabas hands the jug over to Paul, followed with a common towel to dry his hands. My hands are already clean, Paul hints with defiance, both inwardly and out. Are you going to do this here and now, Barnabas asks while sighing. How can I not, Paul says. This is the issue. Barnabas slightly shakes his head as Paul passes the jug without participating in the ritual, engaging with Peter, who was looking over at Paul at the moment. James looks up at his eyes to see how he is no longer paying attention. What is it? he asks. Coming back to attention, Peter smiles at James and says, Sorry, I was just thinking of something. Please forgive me. Go on. Smirking, James then smiles and says, All right, I thought I lost you there for a moment. From across the room, five men glare over at Paul, noticing his breach of etiquette. Slowly absorbing his subtle yet determined rebelliousness, Hillel looks over at Joseph and sees that he is pensive as well. As the meal of bread, oil, and chickpeas come to an end, multiple amphoras of wine are then distributed at each table. James finally nudges Peter and says, Well, you want to get us started? Peter nods and stands for all to see. My brothers and sisters, welcome. Tonight is a special night indeed, as we welcome back Paul, Barnabas. He looks around the room without locating him and continues, and somewhere in here is Titus. Titus raises his hand, and somebody else points him out, saying, Over there. Ah, there you are, Peter says. We have Titus with us as well. The congregation glances in Titus's direction, but only for a moment before looking back at Peter to continue. 
And church, what is the great mystery of our faith? A grizzled Peter asks while leading for an audible recitation of the common creed. The congregation enthusiastically responds, Messiah was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Yes, Peter responds with a wide grin. Yes, he has. That is our hope. And the promise of his imminent return comes from that hope. Peter finds his stride and continues. Tonight, tonight, as many of you know, is a special night. And it sounds like you already know what's in store. The crowd overflows with excitement. Peter continues. Yes, as you know, Saul, Barnabas, and our guest, Titus, have come to us from Antioch. Paul leans back into Barnabas's ear and says, Yeah, some guest over there, huh? Titus is a native of Antioch who is learning more and more about our culture, Peter says. You see, Titus is a Gentile. Murmurs are heard around the room. Yes, God has reached out to the Gentiles with the same spirit that has impacted us, Peter continues. They too have been included as recipients to the new covenant promises and blessings as they have evidenced how God is with them just as he is with us. Joseph cranes his neck to see Titus seated in the unlit corner. Tonight, Peter continues, We will hear from Barnabas and Saul to better learn what the Lord has been doing away from here. Peter looks over at Barnabas and waves both he and Saul to join him. Joseph, son of encouragement, Peter exclaims as he gives Barnabas a hug. Pulling back, he announces, Please, let us know what the Lord has done. He then pats Paul on the back and sits back besides James. Anxious to address the crowd, Shimshon sits upright and places his hand upon Nathan's shoulder to help him stand. Seeing Shimshon's restlessness, Joseph sternly looks over at the man and says, Not now. Sit down. Shimshon grows wide-eyed upon hearing Joseph's rebuke. He then looks around to see those nearby look back to shush him. Circling around to see the room filled with attentive faces, Barnabas begins, As you know, this guy, he points at Paul and goes on, has quite a story to tell. You know his background as a Pharisee and star pupil of Gamaliel. You know he was involved with the Sanhedrin, but you also know he has been found. God has smacked him around, even struck him blind for a short time, in order to prepare him as a light unto the Gentiles. So, after being shipped back to his hometown in Cilicia for many years, to go through an extensive time of preparation, pruning, and much uncertainty, I sought him out to help me train the ragtag church in Antioch. Barnabas looks back and smiles. And help me, he did. Together, Saul and I raised up several leaders within Antioch so that we could begin to take the message of Jesus to synagogues and in the cities throughout Cyprus and Anatolia. Paul chimes in. As Simeon, one of the elders in Antioch, said, Our leaving Antioch was the best thing that could happen to the church there. Barnabas laughs at this. He did say that, didn't he? He laughs again. Yeah, life gets better once we've left. This receives a laugh from the room. Paul scratches his head and smiles at this. Yeah, I suppose it's true. But in this case, our leaving allowed those who we trained to emerge as leaders, where they would assume the needed roles of responsibility. 
It was the only way the church in Antioch could survive without our being there. Yeah, but they didn't just survive. They flourished, Barnabas responds. When we arrived back some two years later, we found a vibrant community of loving and spirit-directed human beings. He then looks over at Titus. In fact, we brought one such amazing human being with us. Titus, he calls out, would you please join us up here? With all eyes fixed on the younger man, the room suddenly stirs in small side conversations. Yes, Paul says, he is a Gentile. Feeling every bit the odd man out, Titus makes his way to the center of the room. Seeing the discomfort around the room, Paul calls out, And the Spirit of God has done with him what many of us could only dream of. Barnabas looks over at a determined Paul and thinks to himself, Oh, I know that look. Here we go. Hillel gasps and looks over to see Joseph begin to stand in protest. Lord, help me find the right words for such a time as this, he prays, and he stands himself. This is Titus, Paul announces. He is a Gentile through and through, but the fruit of the Spirit flows through him, and the Lord will do great things through this young man. Oh, I have heard enough, Joseph mutters. He looks over at the others and motions for them to stand with he and Hillel. Waiting for the room to quiet, Joseph mentally prepares himself for the right moment. And how many of the people who have believed are Gentiles? Another voice calls out. The room grows quiet, and all heads turn to give full attention to the familiar but seldom heard voice. Surprised to hear him speak up, Peter looks over at his childhood friend, breathes a beat, and looks back at Barnabas. Barnabas shifts his gaze from Peter to the quieter man seated next to him. At first, many of those who had a connection with us were Jewish, Barnabas responds, which makes sense, seeing how we spent much of our time teaching in the synagogues. But unlike many of the Jews, the Gentiles were hungry to learn more. They began showing up, wanting to learn more about our risen Lord, even at some of the oddest of moments. Some even came to synagogue when they heard we were going to be there. So the Lord continued to give them a fervor for him, so much so that they aimed to bless one another, the community, and even this church right here in Jerusalem. John smiles at this and slowly nods for them to continue. Yes, when this church was experiencing the famine and persecution from Herod Agrippa, who do you think came to your rescue, Paul says with contempt. Who helped you in your time of need? Yes, it was the Gentiles that God has transformed. He points at Titus and continues, People like this man right here in front of you. More gasps are heard. We've heard enough, a shout comes from the other side of the room. Enough, I say, says an indignant Joseph. John looks up to see the men standing on the other side of the courtyard, and the room turns to see those who object. Seeing that he has the room's attention, Joseph continues, I will not sit here and watch you abandon the sacred law of Moses and toss it aside like a worn-out sandal. This is not what our Lord had in mind. Circumcision and the law of Moses have defined us as the children of Abraham and as God's chosen covenant recipients. The law defines us as a people. He gestures around the room. And every single one of us here in this room abides by it every day of our lives. 
Without it, we would only know chaos and destruction. And as you invite the Gentile dogs in, you slide us into the chaos and destruction that defines them. The room is silent as the tension mounts. Though they stand across the room from one another, both shut out their peripheral vision so as to only focus on the other, as if they were inches away from one another. Seeing his momentum grow, Joseph continues, Without the law, we are nothing, no different than this young man here. We have no understanding of right and wrong, no identity as a people, and no understanding of the Messiah that we aim to serve. The Gentiles must learn of the law. They must uphold the law just as we are called to do so. Peter calls out, Joseph, we have been through this. They must be circumcised just as we are, Joseph interrupts. He walks towards the center of the courtyard and yells out to the room, They must uphold the law of Moses just as we do. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Yikes, things come to a head and the room is quite uncomfortable as Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James the Just, and John contend with a determined Joseph and his band of Pharisee believers. Tensions have been percolating for some time now, ever since Paul and Barnabas came home from their first missionary journey in Antioch, when a number of Messiah-believing Pharisees from Jerusalem, I've given names to them, Joseph, Nathan, Shimshon, Hillel, and Haggai, they came to Antioch. You can see that in the polarized episode to enforce the Mosaic Law upon a predominantly Gentile audience. Shortly afterwards, Paul and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem some 400 miles to the south. On their way, they encouraged the small churches in Tyre, that's along the coast of modern-day Lebanon, and Samaria, that's the area surrounding the recently renamed city of Sebaste, in an effort to make sure that those congregations were staying true to the new covenant message that was under attack by the well-intended keepers of the law of Moses. For the past several episodes leading up to this moment in Acts 15, we've covered the main issue here at length. For a more comprehensive view of this matter, please review the following episodes. For an overview of Paul and Barnabas' first mission trip through Cyprus and Anatolia, check out the Homecoming episode. For a review of Joseph's opposition to the message of grace, check out the following episodes, Put Up or Shut Up, Against the Law, Polarized, Homecoming, and Simmer. But here's a quick summary. A problem has emerged and forced its way into several communities within the early church. Those who were students of the law, many of who were converted Pharisees, have yet to warm up to the idea that Gentiles could know or please God. This isn't a new issue. A decade earlier, Peter faced a skeptical church in Jerusalem. That's found in Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18. Once again, this issue has festered, and it has forced the hand of leadership to finally address it in the Jerusalem Council, which is what Acts chapter 15 is all about. While the church sticks to its original understanding of carrying out life in the newness of the Spirit, many Jews, especially those in Jerusalem, at this time were divided and uncertain with how to intermarry the Old Covenant spelled out in Mosaic Law and the New Covenant promises that would overshadow the need for the law. 
Jesus warned his disciples of this reality on multiple occasions, and now it has become a full-grown issue that threatens to divide the church. So, what's a takeaway here? One takeaway for me just deals with the prejudicial mindset of believing Pharisees and other Jewish believers who make up the church in Jerusalem. Paul grows upset about the subtle yet clear mistreatment of Titus among the Jerusalem believers. That's why he points to the irony of how the Gentile believers in Antioch financially helped the troubled and persecuted church in Jerusalem. Even though they were financially supported, those in the Jerusalem church still saw themselves as superior to their Gentile counterparts. What's worse is that they didn't even see it as a problem. So, when Titus shows up and is more or less rejected by the quote-unquote important people, no doubt he gets a taste of what it feels like to be rejected on account of his background. Titus was on the outside looking in. We don't like being on the outside, as that entails rejection and receiving poor treatment from others. Curiously, if we benefit from it, we don't mind excluding others. Ironically, moreover, given the right circumstances, we may become the very people that we don't like in this instance. I personally can get so caught up in how I've been mistreated that I don't give much attention to the way that I treat others. Crazy, right? Yet I fall prey to this very mindset way too often. Now, Jesus, James, and Paul spend considerable time addressing this hypocrisy in their writings. But to finish up here, let us just take a brief look at one passage here in James chapter 2, where he addresses one hypocritical aspect of how those in the church are extending preferential treatment to those who are wealthy. Here's what he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in fine clothes, and there are also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, Hey, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions amongst yourself? and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors as yourself, that is the royal law of Christ, then you are doing well. James 2, 1 through 9. While the above passage addresses how people are treating the wealthy, the principle here is the same as to what is taking place here in Acts chapter 15 and what Paul writes about later on in Galatians chapter 2. In both cases, whether a Gentile or someone who has little wealth, preferential treatment is often given. And guess what? That breaks God's heart. That's the issue here. Breaking God's heart in the way that we mistreat others. Well, there's so much to say about this, but we do need to wrap it up. And that is it for today. May you be a delight to the heart of God by demonstrating love to those who may not have what you have. May you share God's provisions that have been generously afforded to you and take the opportunity to build others up.
Now, let's move forward together.